Good morning, church. So I am not Pastor Simon. Um, Pastor Simon is on vacation this week, so you get an older guy, an elder guy. Um, Not wiser, just older. Um, For those of you online that are joining us, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're all here this morning. Welcome. Uh, We're in our second week of an eight-week series called Conversations with Jesus. And we're over the next more about Jesus eight weeks. Um, just a couple of points we, we want to hopefully take away is who Jesus is and how much he loves us. And who we are and what we all have in common. And every single one of us is a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And Jesus is that savior. A savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I was looking over the bulletin when I came in, and I noticed my bullet points are invisible. They were on there. They are no longer. So I'm going to share them with you right now. So get your pencils out. Get your bulletins out. I'm going to tell you what those are, and then we're going to be going through those, okay? So when you're having a conversation with Jesus, the first thing you need to know is Jesus is going to tell you exactly what you need to hear. So Jesus will tell you exactly what you need to hear. The second thing you need to know, and I see you writing these things down, is you need to remember that Jesus loves you. Third thing you need to know is that with God, all things are possible. And the fourth thing is you need to trust and follow Jesus. So Jesus is going to tell you exactly what you need to hear. Jesus loves you. With God, all things are possible. And you need to trust Jesus and follow him. So um, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the rich young ruler. And I'm going to share just a little bit um, about me for a minute. So just a few years ago, I was 27 years old. I was a young man. I was a construction superintendent working for a company that built and remodeled remodeled supermarkets. And uh, the company that I worked for got a new project. We got a contract to build a new store. It was a 40,000 square foot supermarket in Santa Fe Springs, and they picked me to be the superintendent to build it. Not because I was the most experienced, not that I was the best candidate, I was the only guy. We didn't have anybody left. All the guys that knew how to build new construction, they were on projects, so I got picked. So, as you can probably think, um, well, I remember my boss telling me, John, it's sink or swim. And that's all I thought about. I was going to sink or swim. I was worried about um, people being on the job that knew more than me. A lot of the subcontractors that would uh, be managed by me probably knew more about their installation than I did. So I was extremely concerned about it. Um, I didn't want to ask questions because I didn't want anybody thinking that I didn't know what I was doing. So rather than ask questions, what I would do is I'd hang out in my construction trailer for hours after everybody went home, and I'd try to figure out what I was doing. I'd try to figure out the schedule. I'd try to get the answers to the questions that I came up with that day that I didn't want to ask anybody about. And uh, it worked pretty well until it was time to build the roof structure. Um, I figured out the elevations. I laid out the roof on the masonry walls. We spent four weeks building it, and then I did what I normally would do, I would check my elevations and double check and make, make sure everything was right. 
Well, when I did that, I found out there was a section of the roof at about 36 feet that was two inches too low. And um, as usual, I checked and I double checked and that's when I panicked. I realized, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I'm going to have to tear off this roof and rebuild it. Everybody's going to know I don't know what I'm doing, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm not all that rational. When I panic, um, I freaked out. You know, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sink, right? And uh, so I did what I should have done a long time ago. I should have called somebody and asked them about how to lay out the roof structure. So we had a superintendent, his name was Jesse at the time. He was a really old guy, I remember thinking. He's probably a lot younger than I am right now. Um, but he had built like 50, 60 structures by then. So I called Jesse that evening. I told him what I did. He was very kind. He went through the drawings with me. We figured out, yep, you're two inches too low. But he said, John, I got good news for you. Two things, he said. One is, nobody's going to get a tape measure and measure at 36 feet. Nobody. And you know, you know what that means? Uh, no, Jesse, what's that mean? Nobody's going to know. It's okay. Nobody's going to know. And I'm thinking, nobody's going to know. I didn't know what I was doing. But no, it was okay because the roof still sloped. It met code. It still drained. Everything was all right. But it was going to work. I learned a really important lesson that morning that there are some questions that just need to be asked because the consequences can be enormous if you don't. Well, we're looking this morning at a young man. We call him the rich young ruler. And um, from the outside, this guy looked like the perfect candidate. He was very religious. If anybody's going to heaven, it's this guy. But we're going to find out in today's story is, like me, you can't hide from God. He knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're hiding. He knows everything about you. So <clears throat> um, it's important that we understand that. The nice thing about this young guy, at least when I was reading this story, I was saying, well, he's a lot better than I was because he asked an important question, one that I probably wouldn't have asked, but he asked it. One of the most important questions in life, I think, um, and it has eternal consequences. You could spend your entire life building things that will one day be lost and torn down. Like this young man we're looking at today, trusting in what you can do rather than trusting in Jesus. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We're looking at verses 16 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere in front of you on this seat. We have them in the foyer as well. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. You're welcome to take it. We're also going to have it on the screen there. Simon would say you could use your phone or your tablet. I'm too old. I don't even grasp that. In fact, I've got notes. How old school is that? The wind blows, we're in trouble here this morning. <clears throat> okay, so Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, I'm sorry, he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, 
Go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Um, It's living, it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Father, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This morning, Lord God, we pray that it's your word that we would hear this morning. Father, that uh, you would speak to each and every one of us, reminding us, Lord, how much you love us, how much you care for us. And Father, that our hearts would be open to your spirit working in our lives. That we would see the truth of who you are and who our Savior is. And Father, who we are and how much we desperately need you. We give you the rest of this time. We pray that you would have all the glory, honor, and praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the scriptures tell us that Jesus had left Judea. So in context... He was on his way to Jerusalem where he would be crucified and give his life for the sins of each and every one of us. It's the final weeks before he's crucified that Jesus encounters this young man. So what do we know about him? What do we know about this young man? Well, Matthew's gospel tells us he was young. Luke tells us he was a ruler. And Mark's gospel tells us how he approached Jesus. He came running to him and he knelt before him. Now, most scholars believe this young man was probably a ruler in the synagogue. So by this point in Jesus' ministries, or ministry, the Pharisees and Jewish leaders were trying to kill him, and they were looking for a way to do that. This young man would have been well-informed. As a leader of the synagogue and being close to Jerusalem, he would have known that that was the case. John chapter 3 tells us that Nicodemus came to speak with Jesus at night. Well, why? Because to follow Jesus was dangerous. So I think it's worth noting that this was a risk for the young man or this young ruler to approach Jesus, especially the way he does, with humility and with respect. Even how he dressed Jesus, calling him good teacher, to me it says a lot. Now, most commentaries I read or I read said Jesus wasn't denying his goodness or his deity. On the contrary, Jesus was doing just the opposite. He was in essence saying to this young man, do you really know who you're speaking with. Do you really know what you're asking? No one is good. No one but God. He asks, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Or just said another way, what must I do to be saved? 
The first thing Jesus does is address, I think, the mistake so many people make. They think there's, this is something that we can do ourselves. There's some good thing we can do to be saved. And Jesus tells them, there is no one good, no one but God. There is nothing you can do. Now, he asks a great question that I alluded to earlier, okay? Right? As we think about the people that we know, we think about the people we love and our family and our friends, would you not love for them to come up to you and ask, what good thing must I do to be saved? It's a great question. Now, Jesus' answer is extremely interesting to me, and I want you to think through this. What could Jesus have told him? What, could he, what answer could he have given to him? What must I do to be saved? Think about that. Jesus tells him something that you would never expect. He could have said what he told Nicodemus, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's me, that whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. He could have told him you need to be born again spiritually. He could have told him what he told his disciples. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one's coming to the Father except through me. Or he could have told him what he told the woman at the well last week. Could have told him everything he'd ever done. Would that have impacted his life? Right? Everything he'd ever done. Or he could have told him, I have living water for you. Doesn't matter what you've done in your life. I have living water for you. But he didn't do that. Jesus didn't say that. Instead, Jesus answers him and says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. This is the first point I want to make this morning. Jesus is going to tell you exactly what you need to hear. When you're having a conversation, he's going to tell you exactly what you need to hear. The young man's response is interesting, but it's honest. If there was something he needed to be true or needed to know, he truly wanted to know. He says, which ones, which commandments do I need to keep? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20 tells us the young man's response. All these things I have kept from my youth. I've done it all, every single one of them. What do I still lack? Somehow, even though this man was very religious and had followed the Mosaic law uh, for his entire life, in the depths of his soul, he still knew there was something that he lacked. And that's when Jesus tells him what he needed to hear. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Scripture says he left sad when he heard that. One commentator wrote, we may make two mistakes here. The one is to believe this applies to everyone. When Jesus never made this a general command um, to all who would follow him. He made it to this uh, one rich ruler where clearly an obstacle to his discipleship was the problem. Instead, many rich people can do more good in the world by continuing to make money and using those resources for the glory of God and the good of others. The second mistake is to believe that this applies to no one, when there are clearly those today for whom the best thing they could do for themselves spiritually is to radically forsake the materialism that is ruining them. I like Alastair Begg. I don't know if any of you listen to him, but he wrote, in the instance of this man, I wish I had a Scottish accent. In the instance of this man, the specific issue is wealth. But those of us who are tempted to say, well, this is an interesting story, but I, of course, couldn't be included among the wealthy. Therefore, it has nothing to do with me at all. 
they are immediately missing the point. This man had in money, in riches, if you like, a substitute God. He wanted to make sure that he had eternal life, and Jesus said eternal life will only come by way of setting aside or smashing your substitute God and then coming and following me. Mark's gospel sheds a little light on this. He records Jesus saying how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. That word um, hard in the Greek is uh, pronounced duskalos, which means it's difficult. So it's hard or difficult for those who trust in riches. On the screen are some verses from Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, if you want to follow along. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? And then from Luke 14, 26 and 27, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus was using hyperbole here. Okay? He wasn't telling us to hate our parents or hate the people in our lives that we love. But what he was saying and telling us is that if we trust in our wealth, our possessions, our parents, spouses, family, and even our own life more than Jesus, we will not inherit eternal life. Now, we hear that and we think, I don't know, maybe you've thought what I've thought. You know, oh, um, I'm sure I would give all those things up if I had to, Right? I mean, if, if, if we pressed into that, well, sure. I love Jesus, and I'd give up all my wealth. I'd give up my house. I'd give up my business, my wife, my children, my family. I'd give them all up. But we've never faced that, have we? Many of us haven't. Um, scripture tells us it would not be long before Jesus would be crucified and raised from the dead. The Jewish leaders had murdered the Messiah, and they were hopefully going to silence and end this once and all, for all, forever. And guess what happened? Something completely different. They never expected it. God took through, through um, Christians, he took the gospel to the entire world. It caught on fire. It spread like crazy. And they couldn't stop it. They panicked. It didn't take any longer than some scholars think maybe three years. Some think less maybe a year, that Stephen was martyred, and then the, uh, the church became um, persecuted. They lost everything. To follow Jesus cost you everything if you were a Christian in the first century. If you lived in Jerusalem, you lost it all. You lost your house, um, your home, your business, your possessions, even your life. You'd get thrown in prison. You'd be betrayed by parents, family, and friends. Jesus knew this. He knew this when he was talking to them. We think you know, differently about it today, but everybody he came in contact with, and he's going to the cross. He's a week or two away from being there. He's been with them for three years, and every single time he talked to, him, to them, he knew that this was the case. For somebody to love Jesus and put their life into him was to lose those things. His disciples would lose their lives. When he approached Jerusalem, he talked a lot about the city, 
when he walked through Jerusalem, he knew in that generation, in that generation, Rome was going to come through and destroy the entire city, level it to the ground. All throughout Judea and Samaria, everybody that was Jewish was going to be hunted down. They were going to lose everything. Jesus knew that when he talked to them. We think, well, what are we going to lose? Well, think about it. What do you get to take with you? Nothing. What is really yours? Nothing. It's all on loan, folks. We don't get to keep any of it. We don't take any of it. You can say, well, I can leave it to my kids or this or that and the other. The point is, it's like Solomon said, we're going to lose it all. We're going to give it away. The things we hope in, the things we place value on, the things that are, the, I guess, to us the most important, you can't hold on to any of it. And Jesus is pointing this out to this rich young man. For this young man, it was his wealth. It's his wealth that he trusted in, that he loved, and that he worshipped, and he needed to hear that. For others, it may be different. Maybe their family, career, maybe the things in this life you desire the most, those are their substitute God. Jesus told him what he needed to hear. If those are the things you're trusting in more than God, you're going to be disappointed. Some time ago, I was sharing Jesus with a friend of mine. His name was Rick. I guess if he was watching this, he'd be okay. Pretty sure he's not. But I was sharing Christ with him, and Rick was... um, He was a business owner, he had money, he had influence, he really had a comfortable life. And at some point, he stopped me. He said, John, stop. And I was was doing my best. I was following Pastor Mike, I was doing the ABCs, I was doing it all. And he says, stop, John, I love my life. I love the things I do. I'm not going to stop doing any of it. Um, He said, someday, when I'm older, maybe I will, but not right now. Well, Rick at least was honest with me. We'd been friends for a very long time. But I remember thinking um, about Matthew 16, 26. But what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This brings me to my next point. When you're having a conversation with Jesus, you need to know that Jesus loves you. Mark's gospel alone tells us that when the young man told Jesus that he had kept all the commandments from his youth, Jesus loved him. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. Think about that. Jesus knew who this young man was. He was going to say some really hard things in his life, and the guy was going to leave disappointed, but he knew the truth about him. And Jesus' response was compassion and love on him. At this point, R.C. Sproul said that Jesus had every right to call this man out. Jesus knew his heart. He knew he hadn't kept any of the commandments. Well, maybe he kept some. He didn't keep them all. Jesus knew that if he had hate in his heart, he might as well have murdered him, right? If he had lusted after a woman, he had committed adultery in his heart. Where was he when Jesus was preaching his sermon on the mount? You know, unless his righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, he would never enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he loved him. And he used the very thing this man had placed his hope in, his works and his wealth, to show him the truth. Deep inside this man's heart, he knew he needed something else. So do each one of us. Every single one of us knows that. 
my opinion. He says, what do I still lack? Here Jesus lovingly reveals the truth. His real problem was following the first commandment. Not the second table of the law, the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. By telling him to go sell all that he had and give it to the poor, he was exposing his real problem. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus loved him enough to tell him what he needed to know in the only way he could understand it. Until this young man was prepared to give up everything and follow Jesus, he could not be his disciple. I want you to understand that this morning. When you're having a conversation with Jesus, I want you to know he's going to tell you what you need. You're different. Patsy is different than Mike, that's different than John, that's different than Maria. He's going to tell you what you need to hear. And you need to know that Jesus loved you or loves you. He, this young man needed to be able to say what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. You can follow along with me. But what thing, things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. This was the young man's only recorded encounter with Christ. Within a few weeks, Jesus would be crucified and give his life for the sins of the world, and that included this young man. It was Passover. As a ruler of the synagogue, this man would have had to have been there. Was he watching when Jesus was unjustly tried? Was he there when Jesus was in front of Pontius Pilate when they were saying, crucify him, crucify him? Was he there when Jesus was hanging on the cross and died? Was he there 50 days later at Pentecost when Peter preached his sermon and thousands believed? We don't know. We're not sure what happened to this young man. But I do know this. Jesus loved him. Encounters with the king of the universe are never by chance. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And Paul said in Romans chapter 3 that there is none who seek after God. This young man not only sought after Jesus, but came running up to Jesus because he wanted to know how to be saved. I've read these verses many, many times, and I often thought, wow, what a tragic ending for this young man's life. But maybe it's just me. I don't know. But who knows? Like so many of us, maybe he had more encounters with the one scripture says loved him. Brings me to my third point. When you're having a conversation with Jesus, remember that with God, all things are possible. I think the scripture might be back up on the screen. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. When Jesus said this to his disciples, it says that they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? This shows us how hard it was many times to understand the truth of what Jesus was saying. Even his disciples didn't get it. John's gospel reminds us over and over again that they didn't get a lot of things until after Jesus was crucified, 
rose from the dead, and the Spirit of God revealed those things to him. In their Jewish culture, it was assumed that riches were always a sign of God's blessing and favor. His disciples probably hoped that following Jesus would lead to wealth and power in his messianic kingdom. Peter's response kind of shows that. What do we get? Only a few days after that, James and John, on the way to Jerusalem, would ask Jesus, when you're in your kingdom, can I sit on your left or right? Power and wealth is something almost all human beings value and pursue. This young man had it all. Now that I'm in my 60s, I think of it in different order. Not rich young ruler, I think young Maybe ruler than rich, I don't know. But at 62, young sounds pretty darn good. He looked pretty darn good. Power and wealth is something almost all human beings value and pursue. For those of you who might say, well, not me. Have you bought a lotto ticket lately? Right? And if you did, if you won, what would you do with it? Well, I pay off some bills, pay off my mortgage. That would be a nice thing to get rid of, right? And then I'd help a lot of people. I'd probably help the people that need it the most. <laughs> not me, right? We, we can make it sound really, really good, right? I'm not saying money and wealth are evil because Scripture definitely doesn't say that. It's clear that money is something that we all need. But the love of money is. And here Jesus is telling us that for the most part, what we put a whole lot of value in, wealth, can make it harder, not easier, to be saved. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is hyperbole as well. How many of you think you could get a camel through the eye of a needle? Right? What Jesus is saying is it's impossible. It can't happen. With men, it's impossible. David Gusick wrote, One problem with riches is that they encourage a spirit of false independence very much like the church of Laodicea. I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. This sounds a little bit about my buddy Rick, or sounds kind of like some of the things he was saying. But here's where Jesus helps us better understand. With men, this is impossible. Let me say it another way. There is nothing a rich man or anyone else can do to be saved. It's impossible. Your wealth, your power, your works... Or your poverty, your humility, and your suffering, right? None of it, none of it's going to save you. It's not about us and what we can do. It's about Jesus and what he's already done for us. Remember Jesus' words, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that's God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We come to Jesus with nothing, and like Jesus said, unless you leave it all, if you leave it all behind, you can't be saved. On the screen um, is Ephesians chapter 2, hopefully, verses 4 through 9. The Apostle Paul tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. There is nothing we can do to be saved. It is God's grace that saves us through faith. And you might say, yes, but I still need to believe. And you're right, even Jesus said that. But he also said, no one comes to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's all God, none of us. A good friend of mine, some of you probably know him or are familiar with him, was hiking by himself not too long ago near Hume Lake, and he got lost. For hours he tried to find his way home, but the more he tried, the more lost he seemed to be. Every turn was the wrong one, and at some point, maybe out of frustration, maybe out of exhaustion, he just laid down on the ground, hopelessly, completely lost. It was a miracle, but fortunately, some people found him and were able to rescue him. But I believe this is a pretty good example of what it looks like to trust in ourselves or our own resources to be saved. We may not know it, but we're lost, unable to find our way, and every effort on our part to save ourselves leads us deeper and deeper into despair and hopelessness. Unless someone, and that's Jesus, comes along and saves us, we are hopelessly lost. What Jesus is saying is on our own, there is nothing we can do. It's impossible, but he didn't stop there. He said, but with God, all things are possible. God's grace is enough to save the rich man. We have the examples of people like Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, and Barnabas. These are all rich men still able to put God first. And to be clear, Jesus is not saying that all the poor people and none of the wealthy enter the kingdom of heaven. That would exclude Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, and many, many others. And this brings me to my final point this morning. When you're having a conversation with Jesus, you need to trust Jesus and follow him. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, that's just another way of saying, saying in the new heaven and new earth or in Christ's kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Peter asks what they were all thinking. We've given up everything to follow, everything to follow you. What do we get? Right? They were human. At this point, many here today may be thinking, what have I given up? You know, I spoke about this a few minutes ago. What have you given up? Right? We live in America. We live in a country where it's still, um, you know, you can still worship freely. And being persecuted for our faith is something we're really not familiar with, I would add yet. But you need to know that we have a family right here in Grace Hills that came here on vacation six years ago and were never able to go home, ever. They couldn't go home because their family said they would kill them when they got there. They came from Iran, and you can't freely worship Jesus in Iran. They had a business. They lost it. They had a home. They lost it. They lost their family. They lost their friends. They lost everything. They can not go home and see their parents. They've lost it all. They understand Jesus' words when he said, you have to give these things up to follow me. They loved Jesus. And because of it, they gave up all those things. In the first century, many who followed Jesus would lose everything, including his disciples, including their lives. To all of them, Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands 
for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. This is when trusting Jesus is so important. Following him and trusting him is so important. His disciples, he says, in my kingdom, you will have special honor and reward. And for everyone else, everyone who chooses me will receive a hundredfold and have what rich, this rich young ruler desired. And that's eternal life. Solomon, or Solomon, Simon says, last week, a couple weeks ago, he said, what is it we're comparing? A life here that Solomon said is but a vapor. It's, you know, it's this long, not even that long, compared to eternity. What are we really giving up? And, you know, as I've shared this morning, it's not easy. Jesus is the one that said, who would build a tower and not count the cost? He's the one that said, who would go to war and not count the cost? We get it. To trust Jesus, we have to give up everything because he is everything in our life. He comes first. But in his upside-down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first, all who follow him and give up all, all things this world places value on instead of him, Jesus will reward, reward a hundredfold. Okay, so this is when, if I could scroll through my deal, I would have the right sheet and I don't have it. So bear with me. I knew this was going to happen. So when you have a conversation with Jesus, what four things do you need to remember? Right? This is class now. You don't have to answer. <laughs> you need to know that he's going to tell you the truth. He's going to tell you what you need to hear. You're going to know, you need to know that he loves you. You need to know that with God all things are possible. And finally, you need to trust Jesus and follow him. Have you had a conversation with Jesus? Have you talked to him like this rich young ruler? I mean, maybe you've prayed. Maybe you've talked to him. Maybe you've talked about spiritual things, right? Maybe you haven't made a commitment. You've been uncertain. Maybe this is the first time you've ever considered the question, what must I do to be saved? Well, one of the greatest persecutors of the church till God threw him off a horse on the way to Damascus or a donkey, I forget the Apostle Paul, he told us the answer to that. This might be on the screen. It might not. But if it, there you go. Um, this should be in your, your notes this week too, I think. Um, but the Apostle Paul gave us the answer to that question. He said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What do I have to do to be saved? I have to understand that I'm a sinner. I have to admit that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Every one of us gets that. The Apostle Paul told, in, told us in Romans that he reveals that to us, that we're screwed up people. We're a mess. We come with a lot of baggage, but every single one of us is the same. We all have that in common. We're sinners. Then he said in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a price to be paid for our sin, and Jesus did that for us so that we didn't have to. God is holy, God is righteous, and for us to spend eternity with him, we must be as well. It's Jesus' blood that washes us clean. He's the one that paid that price. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we're still wallowing in our mess, 
lost, Pastor Mike laying on the road, no hope whatsoever. That's when Jesus died for you. Not that you had done anything, not that you had anything to offer, you have nothing. But while you're still a sinner, Christ died for you and for me. And that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That confession, we have to believe that Jesus died for us. We have to believe that he was crucified, that he rose from the dead on the third day and that he lives at the right hand of the Father and he rules and reigns today. We have to admit that. In our heart, we have to know that. And scripture says that's faith, putting faith in him. And that if we, um, or therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we're willing to admit that, then that peace, that hope, joy that's not even possible for us apart from a relationship with God is what he gives us. The eternal life that this young, rich ruler, I said that in my order, didn't I? What he was looking for is what Christ gives us. He gives us eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we come here this morning, every single one of us, we're all the same. We all have one thing in common, and that's we're sinners. Father God, you have taken care of that for us. You loved us so much that you sent your son to die for each and every one of us, to pay the price, to take our sin and put it on himself so that we could have a relationship with you. And for each and every one in this, this room this morning that has done that, Father God, I pray that they would be comforted this morning knowing that you have blessed them. It's by grace that they've been saved. And that, Father, you give them through your spirit the power to live a life that honors you. And for anybody that doesn't know you, Father God, I lift them up to you this morning. Father, your word speaks to our heart. It says things that no man could write that could ever penetrate that heart, Father God. Yet your word, your word does, it's supernatural. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray, Father God, that they've made that commitment to you, that they've put their faith in you. I pray that they would say this prayer right now in their seat, in their own heart. Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah, Savior of the world. Forgive me for my sins. I know I've made mistakes in my life, and I'm sorry. Thank you for dying on the cross and praying that, or paying this price for my sin. I believe you died and rose again and I commit my life to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. So if you've um, made that commitment this morning, we want to help you. Um, after the service, I'll be over here and we'd like to talk to you. And you could talk to me, you could talk to Justin, you could talk to one of the elders here. But we want to give you what you need to know how to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. So I'd love to talk to you. Um, this morning we're celebrating communion. So what is communion? Well, the Apostle Paul said we're remembering Jesus' death. Jesus died for each and every one of us. We were guilty, not him. We are sinners, not him. Yet he died for each, and one, of, each one of us. He gave his life for us. He died on the cross paid the price that we should have paid. He did that for us. So we remember that when we celebrate communion. And who's it for? It's for everybody that's put their faith in Jesus. 
If you love Jesus, this is for you. If you're here on vacation and you're from another church, this is for you. If you've loved Jesus for years, this is for you. If this is the very first time you've ever put your faith in Jesus, this is for you. So we're going to celebrate. We're going to do it together because it's the first week of the month. So what we're going to do is we'll start in the rows. We'll come to the center. We'll go get the elements. We'll bring them back to our seat. And then after the music, I'll come back up and I'll lead you in communion.